Those of us that face cancer or try to treat it, it's war every day. And so if you need a war to mobilize your resources, well, just talk to a cancer patient or a family member or go to a cancer center. There's, it's a war going on every second. You're listening to Illogical by Truth. This podcast decodes the language, decisions, and hidden areas of local power that often seems illogical to residents. The goal of this podcast is to empower people to engage locally and to understand how significant it is to be aware and active at the local level. Once local government is logical, it will become meaningful and provide the benefits that allows for people to live a thriving life. Good evening. I hope everyone is well. Welcome to the Illogical Podcast hosted by Dr. Terrence Ruth. I am your host for the evening, Troy Johnson, AKA Bro Troy of the Bro Code Show, a personal development TV show supporting wellness and impact through courageous conversations and transparency. This live podcast production is brought to you by EarFluence and hosted by community partner Paragon Theaters. Let us remember why we are here, and that is to support the American Cancer Society and Men Wear Pink movement to eradicate cancer. That's what y'all supposed to clap there. <laughs> there you go. That's, 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 that's definitely a hand clap motion. A brief overview of the amazing people on the panel. Of course, it's ladies first. So... First, we have Ms. Jacqueline Wittenberg. Ms. Wittenberg serves as the executive director of the Wittenberg Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring financial assistance to need-based junior and senior college students pursuing degrees. They partner with students to help them achieve academic success and earn a degree with minimal to no debt. Fun fact about Jacqueline. She is a nerd at heart, and she spoke <laughs> briefly before this conversation I want her to tell this story about a 50 Cent concert. She was there. Yeah, I know. It blew my mind. Too. I was like, what? But she was there and she is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, biology and chemistry major at NC State. NC Go Pack. Right? Go Pack. Uh, with that being said, during the concert, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Miss Jacqueline, there was, what was the name of that? That's fear? What was, uh, uh, DNA double helix. Whatever that, whatever she just said right there, it was at a 50 Cent concert. He was talking about in the club and she saw that. And that's what she was focused on. So fun fact about that nerd moment of Miss Jacqueline Wittenberg. Up next, we have Carmen Coffin. Uh-oh, I got it right. Carmen is a change agent at heart. She is a brilliant writer and researcher and she has become known as a powerful advocate for race, equity, and legacy. Fun fact about Carmen, she is a lover of black ops novels, most importantly written by Mitch Rapp. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about that later in the conversation. Next, we have Gary Vinson. Gary is a senior level biotech executive with a wealth of experience spanning multiple environments, including big pharma, contract development, and manufacturing organizations, small VC-backed startups, and publicly traded biotechnology companies. Whew. Fun fact about Gary. Gary and Jacqueline actually were in the same chemistry class <laughs> at NC State. Like the nerds, that's why they sat next to each other. I, feel, I felt the energy was just right there. That's what it was all about. Next, 
<laughs> and Gary is one of the few people, we shared this laugh before the show, who's actually born and bred right here in Raleigh. He is a Raleigh native. You don't get too many like that. And next we have Dr. Lewis Harrison. Dr. Harrison is the CEO and president and co-founder of My Caregorhythm. My Caregorhythm was created with the singular purpose of developing the tools to transform the, transform the consultation encounter between a cancer patient and a cancer specialist. Mm. Their intent is to replace the status quo with a multimedia, educational, impactful, personalized, and visual impressive experience. Their goal is for the patient and their caregivers to emerge the knowledge and confidence that they understand their cancer journey and are on the path to their best possible outcome. And for the cancer specialists and their institutions to provide a differentiating experience for their patients. Fun fact about Dr. Harrison, he is a horrible singer. <laughs> and his wife is a wonderful singer. He took ownership, like the word for the day, I was teaching in the schools earlier, and the word for the day was accountability. Well, he has taken accountability of his horrible singing endeavors and is now taking lessons. So hand clap for Dr. Harrison. <laughs> Last but not least, our host for the night is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Terrence Ruth. Dr. Ruth is currently serving as a professor at NC State. Go Pack. Terrence is a lover of God, family, and the community that he serves passionately on a daily basis. Fun fact, Dr. Ruth is an avid reader and engaging in conversations surrounding community and social ecosystems are near and dear to his heart. I personally look at him as a friend and admire him as a man. Are y'all ready to get this conversation going? Yes. Y'all got to do better than that. <laughs> Are y'all ready to get this conversation going? Yes. Awesome. I'll be back in to check in with the audience a little later. Dr. Ruth, take it away. Then we're going to go ahead and get started. And, and we have such an amazing panel. And uh, we're going to start with Jacqueline Wittenberg. We want to thank you for being here. Uh, Jacqueline, please briefly share your area of research and your background in less than 30 seconds. And I want to follow it up with a question. Okay, sure. Well, clinical research has been something that's been near and dear to my heart for many years because it allowed me to help people who had very little education about what their options were in terms of health care, what their options are in terms of understanding and knowing the right things to ask physicians when they go for treatment. And so I've worked in the area of, um, I've been with the non-small cell lung cancer pod at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I also worked uh, with the non-alcoholic fatty deliver disease clinical trials team at Duke University. I've worked in vector-borne diagnostic diseases at North Carolina State University in one of the uh, global working lab, uh, the BrightSports lab. And through all of those experiences, it just keeps popping up in my mind that there's something that I need to be doing that hasn't been done yet. And so I've used all of my employment opportunities in clinical research and clinical trials and research to actually give me some insight on how to address some of the issues that plague the misunderstanding and mistrust in the healthcare uh, field and also with the people who provide those services. Thank you, Jacqueline. In, in your opinion, what are the origins and key challenges to rebuilding trust in healthcare after COVID? You know, 
That is a very loaded question because it runs deep. And it goes back to how people grew up, the environments in which they uh, were reared. And unfortunately, in underserved communities, this healthcare issues that plague, if you look at statistics, you always hear that something is more prevalent amongst African Americans or black and brown people. Well, a lot of that, if you look on the flip side of things, geographically, those are the areas where you found the most underserved communities. So that question leads me back to um, answer that with not having accept, being having accessible um, outreach to healthier food options. Um, you can go into any underserved community, even now, and the first thing you see on every corner is what? A fast food restaurant where they're offering the meals are more, um, more affordable for that region. So if you can go get a meal that's probably going to kill you in the long run for $12 to feed a whole family as opposed to going to a supermarket where you have access to produce, healthy uh, other healthy food options, all of those things play a role in health issues that arise in that population. And so what happens through the years, they develop this mistrust in the healthcare system because when they go, they don't have health insurance most of the time, and they're referred to the emergency room. They go into the ER and no health insurance. And sometimes, you know, they are given the minimal treatment for the issues they have. And I think it has really um, led into some issues now where these people are starting to get a little bit more education, a little bit more insight on health care and what they should be doing to take care of themselves. But the problem is they don't trust anymore because they've been down that road to the medical facilities and they've been told, okay, well, they don't tell them you don't have health insurance, so we're going to give you the minimum treatment. But oftentimes they walk away with that and they still have the issue that they have and they're not getting educated on how to address those health concerns. And so it gets, it, it's, it, it, there are a lot of things that sort of cause this not so good relationship between underserved people from underserved communities. And that's across the board in health, in healthcare, and education, and part of healthcare and understanding is education. And I think that part, those pivotal, important uh, tools are missing in those underserved communities. And so that triggers down to all of the other issues that, uh, that we were experiencing in those areas. Now, I had a, a uncle, a, a great uncle, who actually passed away during COVID. And part of the conversation was around his lack of trust for the treatment. And this is open to the whole floor. Do you see the connection between the trust of the treatment for COVID as existing prior to COVID, or was it just a result of the pandemic? I think it was prior to COVID, and especially in the black and brown community. And if you think back to the Tuskegee experiments and all of that, that plays a role in it. Even though things have changed now and laws have changed and how the healthcare system is managed and governed, trying to get them to understand. And, and the part that they really didn't grasp is 
You've had vaccines before. You've had a polio vaccine, some people, uh, TB, um, you, you know, um, all of the vaccines that are required to go to school. But why was it, it had to be a distrust, because why wouldn't you take something that could potentially save your life? Now, I just want to, before we move on to Dr. Harrison, I want to just give a fun fact. In Jacqueline's free time, her family leads the Jimmy V Foundation for cancer. So she is fighting cancer all the time. And so I just want to thank you for the time that you've put in and being founding members of the Jimmy V Foundation. And so thank you uh, for what you do for cancer, even when people aren't fully aware of, of the things that your whole family is committing to. And just a, one little correction there. My husband is a 30-year founding board member of the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research, and he was appointed by his former coach, the late Jim Balvano. Wow. So I mean, th thank you for your family. So doc Dr. Harrison, we're going to shift on over to you. Um, I would love if you can share with the audience just your journey to the, the field of medicine. Well, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, uh, when I was a young child, one of my friends on the street developed cancer and ultimately passed away, left an impression on all of us on this uh, little street in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, that led to our uh, mothers all getting together and uniting to form a little charity group that donated uh, money and toys to the children uh, with cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And so as a young child, I got to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering, bring uh, toys to the, to the kids, and um, experienced, of course, firsthand, you know, the challenge, the plight, and the importance of, of cancer. And uh, deciding that I wanted to go into medicine, uh, there was never a question in my mind that I was going to seek a, a career in cancer. I'm a radiation oncologist, and uh, my area of interest has been head and neck cancer, and my area of clinical focus has been to develop treatments for head and neck cancers that respect the functional outcome and the quality of life that patients have. So, for example, treating patients with cancer of the voice box without removing the voice box mm -hmm. so they can continue to talk, cancers of the eye without removing the eye, cancers of the tongue without removing the tongue, cancers of facial structure without distorting people's faces. And so my, uh, my clinical interest has always been treating these cancers and developing novel approaches that accomplish what I've just described to you. As a physician executive, I've had the experience of leading departments and leading cancer programs and trying to put into action on a, to a larger population the things that we learn uh, by, by treating one patient at a time. Wow. I, I, I would love if you can share with us from just from your experience, what has been the most significant impact of COVID on your profession? In order to understand that, there's, I'll say there are two phases to this. When COVID first came upon us and there was no vaccine and we didn't really have good treatments and hospitals like ours were overwhelmed mm. with patients, the scenario, and I'm, I, at, at the time, I was, I was at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, and we, we were tremendously challenged. We didn't have enough medications. We didn't have enough ventilators, or did we have enough ventilators? What happens if lots of staff get COVID 
and we have patients with no staff to take care of them. What will happen if we have to start to ration uh, mm. blood, blood products and other things that we need, including ventilators, to treat critically ill patients? I, as a physician, put on protective equipment with masks and gowns and gloves, and I had to change them constantly throughout the day, as did all of my colleagues. The providers of healthcare during this period of time, at least what I saw, were so respected and so so much gratitude. Every night at seven o'clock, people would rattle their pots wow. and pans, and people would express a societal gratitude to those of us who are on the front lines. And I'll never forget that, and I'll never forget the appreciation of that. That is the reverse of lack of trust. Mm. But what's happened since that period of time? Well, you know, the, the rules and regulations about what the best things to do for a patient became unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, information was put forth by government and other authorities that turned out not to necessarily be true. A lot of issues related to vaccinations that was misinformation and not proper information. And, and um, I'm not sure that the distrust emanated from the physician community or the healthcare world as much as it was propagated by media and everybody else involved. But all of us have a stake in taking responsibility for it. And I think that what might have really truly been innocent ignorance in the middle of a crisis of not really knowing what to do maybe got in interpreted as, as mistrust. Now, on the other hand, and I'll say one last thing, uh, people did inject their own personal agendas into the problem. And instead of trying to band together, uh, this crisis sort of took us apart. I, I will tell you that I was in lower Manhattan, uh, two miles away from the World Trade Center on 9-11. And the, the thing I'll tell you is how that city and how the country, most of us who are old enough to remember, came together. Mm. A crisis brought us together. Somehow this crisis, COVID, ripped us apart. Mm. And we, we as a society need to learn why, why that happened just 20 years after a crisis brought us together. Wow. Now, now, the podcast is called Illogical because the goal is to seek to make sense of things in our local government, in our healthcare system, our education, our, our local government. Help that make sense to the average person. So as you think about the challenges that you laid out as a result of COVID, what would be some of your top priorities in addressing some of these healthcare challenges for the average listener? Well, I think uh, honesty and transparency should always be number one. Um, admitting mistakes and taking corrective action to try to overcome mistakes. Making it clear that we behave in fact and in, su in substance and in appearance with respect to everyone and not create rules, regulations, programs, or processes that leave people behind. I think key here, and Dr. Harrison touched on this, really is educating people. Because there are people who are innocently not privy to what's going on or they don't have a clear understanding, but the education is the key. And uh, I think that needs to be the priority. Because when you understand you learn and you do better. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to pivot to Carmen. 
Carmen is what we call our city historian. She, she probably heard that for the first time right now in this podcast. <laughs> but she wrote the book on the historic uh, neighborhoods of African-Americans um, in Raleigh. And she actually wrote the book. <laughs> and so uh, that book is everywhere. I went to Greensboro to a resort, and it was in the library at, in Greensboro. Um, and so Carmen is a darling um, to the city, to the treasure. Her family has a rich history in engaging communities. Her father owned a pharmacy. I mean, I, hopefully I'm not sharing your answer to the question. I, <laughs> but I say this because her, her perspective is unique because she's embedded in the community and trusted with stories and the history of Raleigh. And so I wanted to bring her in for this particular uh, question. But Carmen, if you could just share a little bit about your story and your background, and I'll, I'll offer you a question. Didn't you just tell all my story? <laughs> so I am a Raleigh native. My father and his family moved here in 1935. Um, my grandfather was a pharmacist. He actually attended Shaw University's Leonard School of Pharmacy before graduating from Meharry after Leonard's um, schools were closed down in 1918. Um, my father, as I said, was a pharmacist, and he went to Virginia Union for chemistry. Uh, he wanted to be a pharmacist, but in the 50s, he could not go to UNC's pharmacy school because that wasn't allowed for African-American students. So he ended up at Temple in Philadelphia. My mother was an educator, and I worked at the legislature when I graduated from NC State. The, the thing for me about healthcare is, number one, for the most part, Black people couldn't afford health care. Doctors were graduated from Shaw's Medical School until it closed in 1918. There was a report called the Flexner Report that you and I have talked about in the past. But this report um, changed the entire um, educational system for doctors um, in particular in terms of trying to have consistency in what medical schools look like and the courses that they taught, as opposed to the holistic programs that were out there. And they were those programs were anywhere from six weeks to be a doctor or Shaw's four-year program, which was, and Shaw had the first four-year program in the country. And so this report required that schools have this consistency. So that meant they had to have a certain amount of funding. They had to have a certain amount of equipment. Most of the black schools could not afford that, and a number of the larger white schools couldn't either, so they merged. But what ended up happening in the black community was that the black schools closed. So there were no more, there were, it closed. So there was Howard and Meharry. Those were the only two black medical schools in our country from 1918 until 1963. So you can imagine that caused a dearth of black medical professionals. So it, it wasn't that nobody black went to medical school, but it was just access in our community where we could afford it, where we were allowed to go to school during those periods was gone. So that meant that the cost of medicine or, or seeing a, a doctor or the ability to see a doctor was strictly slowed down in our community. And that meant 
you know, pharmacists were shut out as well, um, dentists. So medical care in the entire realm in America was on a very limited basis for African-Americans. So you only went to the doctor if you were pretty much deathly ill. It wasn't something that you saved money to do. You know, most of us don't save money so we can go to the doctor or the lawyer or the, we, you know, those are things that we do if we absolutely have to. So you have to consider that that wasn't necessarily a distrust, but it was an inability to fund. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it was the root of a system. And even the AMA did not allow black physicians to join until the late 50s. So you have it, it's a multitude of problems here. There's an economic problem. There's a societal problem. There's uh, an injustice in the whole process. And so a lot of times, black people, brown people, um, they just didn't deal with health issues. You and, and people would die because they mm-hmm. couldn't get the care. There wasn't. They weren't able to get the care, and because they were f- afraid. Uh, there was this thing where we didn't talk about it, especially if there were issues with men. Women might talk about it, but they still weren't necessarily getting the proper health care that they needed. So in terms of numbers, black people died more often. And uh, someone that I follow, Dr. George Frazier, said, you know, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. That's true. And so even in terms of who was able to get vaccines, black people weren't getting vaccines at their doctor's offices like white people were during COVID. And so there in, in here in Wake County, there were black, a group of black female doctors who went out and made sure that they were able to get vaccines and they took them out into the community. And so I had friends, and I, I know a number of us did, we had friends who would send out an email and say, they've got vaccines at this place. You need to sign up right now because they'll go fast. And there was a network of people, community activists, people who were concerned about others in the community who made sure that especially the elders could get these vaccines because they would find out where they were and they would spread the word out, even when the, the government vaccine um, test came out. They were they would send that information out early to make sure that African Americans and uh, people of color were going to to have access to them because people didn't have don't have money to go you know especially with COVID you couldn't work so so many people you know the economic piece was just as much of a factor as not being able to afford to go to the doctor and ending up with a, a bill on top of that. Now, we, we, we've rested our conversation on an article from Medical News Today um, that evaluated the uh, sort of eroding of trust um, during COVID. There's, there's different theories that would argue that trust was low at the beginning or there were certain seasons within the pandemic where trust was high or low. Um, sort of what Dr. Harrison was re- referencing when you've seen sort of a praise of medical professionals and nurses um, like you did during 9-11, when firefighters were 
uh, praised for for their uh, courage in New York. Um, so post nine eleven, I mean, I'm sorry, post COVID, uh, Carmen, what legacies do you see from Black physicians, Black medicine that can help give us some um, ways to rebuild trust in communities of color? Um, I know your your father had a pharmacy. My wife worked at a pharmacy for many years, and that. That is a community inside. When you come and pick up your medicine, when you come and talk about why you're t- taking that medicine, there's a communal relationship that exchanges in those moments. What What do you see as an avenue for uh, potentially rebuilding trust in communities of color? You know, I think that's a hard question because we still have the same issues, the same systemic issues that we had before. I'm seeing more and more people who or without housing. I I would venture to say that it's more important for me to have a roof over my head than for me to worry about my health. Um, I'm still seeing people who don't have jobs. So the cost of medical care is still an issue. And literally, I heard yesterday that our, um, our chief medical examiner for the state has said again, we need to cut back on having events where there are more than 50 people in attendance. I'm still seeing COVID prevalent in the community. Uh, I see a lot of people who don't have, you know, we don't have our mask on. And it's hard to walk around with that. You know, we want life to be normal like like it was before. I don't know that it ever will be again. But one of the other ways I think we have to help to build trust in our medical community, we have to make sure that as people of color, we are included in healthcare decisions, in research studies. I have been involved in research studies for the last 20 years because I was at a, um, a National Conference of State Legislatures meeting probably in 1996. That was when I first realized that most research studies were done on white men. And I thought, well, how how are they figuring out what to do for women if most of the studies are on white men? That's not all of us. And so I got involved in research studies on diabetes. You know, I, I make sure that I am signed up if there's a registry. I make sure that I ask every question that I ever have. When I was caregiving for a husband and children and parents, I had notebooks for each person. And so when we would go to the doctor, there, the questions would already be there. The answers go in the same notebook because I don't want to forget the information that I'm told. And sometimes it was a fight to get to the doctor with my husband. He didn't want me to go all the time. But I think it's important for you to have an advocate with you when you go to the doctor because if they have good news, if they have medication needs to tell you, somebody else needs to be there with you to hear it. Sometimes, especially if it's um, you've gotten a bad prognosis, all you're focused on is what you heard. You, you aren't focused on any of the other things that you need to do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and following instructions. So I advocate for people to take someone with them. So literally, if my mother was going to the doctor, there were three of us because my dad wasn't going to miss it, 
And I needed to be there to answer questions, to give things that I had seen, and to make sure that I wrote down or took count of the things that had to be done. And I carried important things in my phone. I carried a list of medications in my phone. I carried, um, you know, if when she was on oxygen, when I was on oxygen, I had a document saying, that, a picture of it in my phone saying, <laughs> this is why. This is what I have to use this for. And I think it's important for us to do those things. But in the heat of a diagnosis, we don't think about, you know, those kinds of things. We think about, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And so it's important to have somebody else with us that we trust um, to to make sure that we are heard and that um, the questions that we have are answered. Because a lot of times, if we don't get the questions answered, then we make up answers in our head, and that doesn't help anybody. And I, I wanted to uh, sort of kick this over to Dr. Harrison and Jacqueline. Um, can you explain further the importance of having representation in, in trials. Um, I don't know if I don't know if in certain communities they share the importance of that often, but I would love if you can, and then Jack, we can go after Dr. Harris. Well, it's a big issue. Uh, the accrual of minority patients of all, of all types in clinical trials is, is way too low nationally. Uh, the, the black community is underrepresented in most clinical trials, um, and that underrepresentation has so many components to it. Uh, uh, the fear uh, that people have of joining a trial for some of the reasons that you uh, described, uh, but also um, uh, being able to explain a trial to people that have educational inequities and disparities. And um, the very, very fact that there's a larger percentage of patients that present with more advanced disease for which there isn't a good trial because of the nature of it. So this is a big this is a big issue, and I think to the credit of the National Cancer Institute, you know, there's an increasing push, and and this is true across certainly most cancer centers that I'm familiar with. There's an active push to enhance minority accrual uh, to to clinical trials. I'll tell you that one of the one of the things that we did in our company, one of the reasons why we started the company in terms of educating patients, is to break down the barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, of education by using visuals and media, because visual learning is a much more important way to learn than auditory learning. Mm-hmm. But 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 society is paying more attention to this. And I think you will find that minority accrual to clinical trials is going to continue to rise. Mm-hmm. A lot of attention is being given to this. M- maybe not, maybe too little too late, but but this is a big topic. I, I was so happy to hear you, Dr. Hall, say that um, how you participated, you started participating in clinical trials 20 years ago. It is very true. I saw so many trials that were being conducted that could have benefited black and brown people if they had just understood the importance of participating in the trial and how it could possibly or potentially save their life or give them a prolonged prolonged life with the condition that they have. And again, it all goes back to the education of, education of it, being able to explain to that person and have that person to understand exactly what's going to happen during that trial. And in clinical trials, 
Before a person is ever invited to participate in the trial, there's something called informed consent. And I can't tell you how many times I've actually sat in a room to go over through that informed consent. And we've done all of this work leading up to the informed consent process. And I'm uncomfortable with accepting a yes from the subject because I feel like when I ask questions, they don't clearly understand what we've been explaining to them leading up to that moment. And so that's a big issue. And especially in the recruitment of black and brown subjects for clinical trials. Um, no one's ever really educated them or talked to them about the health condition they have. Like now, you've probably heard this, um, a lot of people refer to uh, diabetes as sugar. That In their mindset, that's what they've been taught, don't eat sugar, but they haven't been taught that when you eat starch, all those things can break down into sugar. And so they haven't been taught the pathways by which their health is affected. And so as much as we um, explain to them why it's necessary for them to, to participate in clinical trials, it's difficult. It is difficult when the education has never been there from the very beginning. And the other part of that is they also don't understand that by participating in clinical trials, it helps in drug development on how to treat us because certain conditions affect different races of people differently. But if you don't participate in the clinical trials, we have nothing to go by but who the subjects were in the trial. And we look at, I feel the same way when we talk about diversifying the blood supply. We have all of these black and brown babies being born with sickle cell anemia but we are not able to save many of them because black and brown people are not donating blood like they should be. And therefore, it's difficult to treat these babies. And so um, it really goes back to making sure that we can explain in layman terms, taking the science into consideration, but really explaining in layman's terms to where they can fully understand um, what it means to participate in a clinical trial. And that brings me to uh, our, our panels that we have yet to hear from. <laughs> uh, Gary, can you share with the listeners a little bit about your profession? Um, I think that you'll be the first person for most of my listeners to hear someone that actually create medicine. And so if you can just give us a... a... Sure, Terrence. Thanks for having me. Um, I make... Drugs for a living, <laughs> the, the, the legal kinds. <laughs> and you shouldn't say that to TSA agents, by the way. Um, but no, in all seriousness, to bring medicines to fruition, to put them into the clinic for Jackie to dose patients, someone has to make them. And so backing away from that, usually medicines start out in a laboratory in an academic setting uh, in research, and then as a result of that research, um, the, anal the researchers publish their data and peer-reviewed journals and people review it, and then over time it gets commercialized and brought into some sort of business in, in a setting where the goal is to make a treatment for a particular disease state. And that's where I come in because I do all of the logistics and all of the operations 
to support that. And typically that involves doing all the analytical work to characterize a drug, that is to test it and to develop tests that will show what it is and that it is, uh, has the right components involved and that it is safe and pure and, and efficacious, which are the three key um, parameters at the FDA, which is the regulatory body that governs uh, the drugs in, in this country, mandate that, that drugs possess. So one analogy that I like to use is that I'm sort of the restaurateur uh, and I'm sort of the chef behind the scenes. And so it's really the logistics and operations. And so once you've got the analytical piece, then you get into a process development where you bring folks in and say, okay, we have this chemical entity. What do we need to do to, to man- make this manufacturable? And typically that means then in the same way that you would come up with a recipe that would add flavors and make things tasty and nutritious, you want to come up with, with other agents that will chemically either bind with or be non-reactive to the drug to allow it to be stable in some form so that you can manufacture it, um, hold it, distribute it, and then be able to dose it to patients. So long story short, I make I make the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, now, in terms of making uh, drugs, what are some lessons learned from COVID-19 pandemic that can be applied to rebuilding trust in healthcare? And you, and you walked us through the dramatic sort of changes and lessons learned during the pandemic, but I would love if you can share. Yeah. So, I, so, so first off, I think there's a couple of key things. Most people, and, and we've heard a theme here uh, of education, and I think most people, first off, don't understand the science behind uh, pharmaceuticals or, or biotechnology, and, and that's fine. But most people have no understanding of the complexity of being able to identify a pathogen, uh, in this case, uh, the, the precursor to COVID, and then analytically build a drug around that and then scale that into a manufacturable entity and then make that in, in very large quantities and distribute it. So I think the first thing is education so that people understand that process. Then I think, candidly, the second piece is the business factors around that because let, let's be honest, one of the things that you get into is that the companies that make these drugs then make a lot of money from them. Um, and only recently, Pfizer and Moderna have finally gone back down uh, in terms of their stock market share price to what they were at in a pre-COVID um, values. And so without getting into the politics or the economics of that, these companies have supply chains. So using my restaurant model, if you're going to have some things on the menu, somebody's got to go out and buy all the ingredients for them and plan for all of that and then have the, the facility to make it. Now, when, when a 100-year event like COVID comes around, you are no longer talking about making things on a normal scale. You now have to make millions and millions, whereas in the past you might have made thousands um, or even you know tens of millions. So the scale factor kicks in, and whenever the scale factor kicks in, it causes the dollar factor to kick, kick, kick in. So suddenly making these things becomes very expensive. So somebody has to pay for all of this because the people that are making them and the companies that are making them still want to get paid. The people that work at these companies have to have to you know have families and want to go home and, and feed 
you know, their families and, and pay their bills, et cetera. So then you get into the politics, frankly, of who pays for it. And in a 100-year event, just COVID, then it brings us back to this other theme that I've been hearing here, which is access, whether it be access to information or access to the ability to study, to learn, or, or whatnot. And then the third part of that, I think, is distribution. How do you get these new drugs out very, very quickly? And so I think understanding how to scale things, um, the paying for things, and figuring out that out very quickly so that, that, that they can be made and keeping those factories going um, and finding the factories that can turn all of their equipment into making this one product, uh, it becomes a logistical issue. So I think the education piece moving forward would be a big thing. And so many people had read in history books about, the, you know, 1918 and, and what they were then calling the Spanish flu. But no one had really, I think, really ever been through something like this. And the other piece that I would say is there had been politically this anti-vax movement that had been building and building and building. And a lot of it comes back to some of the issues that we're talking about here. And when you couple some of the newer issues, it 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 just calls a real issue. Uh, a, a, I think the learning moving forward is how to get out in front of that educationally. Now, I wanted to just go down uh, in, a, in, a, in a line here. We'll start with Dr. Harrison. And this is our final question for everyone before we open up for questions. Um, what are your hopes for the future of healthcare in the United States and its impact on building trust from individuals and families impacted by cancer? I lost my, the same year I graduated my PhD, I lost my father to prostate cancer. And this year, February, I lost my grandmother. Um, she she battled, uh, she had five battles with cancer, and breast cancer, and, and lost this final battle. So my family is a very intimate uh, a relationship. First time I've lost somebody close to me, it was through cancer. Um, and so for me, um, I would love to just hear what's the future, what's your hopes for the future of healthcare in the United States and its impact on building trust from individuals and families who are impacted by cancer? Well, uh, we would love to see a world eradicated of cancer. Uh, that would be a dream for all of us. Absent that and the energy and the wisdom and the resources to accomplish that, which I think societies do at the level that they can and at the will of the people, um, the next best thing is either trying to prevent cancers by diet and this is again, education, mm -hmm. education, education. What can I do for my diet, my physical activity, you know, smoking and, 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 and all of those things. And then moving along the continuum from prevention is early detection. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we detect cancer the first day it, it, a cell appears? And so, and, and so you, you've got to walk down the line from, you know, eradication to prevention to early detection. And then, of course, into the therapeutics. And in each of the areas along that continuum, which would include end-of-life care, uh, there's its own set of challenges and its own set of uh, initiatives. And at the end of the day, and then of course there are other diseases that people get. And so like any other society, there's more to do than there is the resources to do it. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be a, uh, a will, a collective 
will of, of society, of, of all of us, to make this a priority and to demand that attention is given to, to cancer, but to other diseases as well in, in, in balance. I think uh, uh, if, if, if war is what mobilizes a society as at a time of crisis, well, those of us that face cancer or try to treat it, it's war every day. It's war every day. And so if you need a war to mobilize your resources, well, just talk to a cancer patient or a family member or go to a cancer center. There's, it's a war going on every second. Thank you, Dr. Harrison. Carmen? I think he answered all of it for the most part. But one of the other things I would add would be um, equitable access to health care. Um, a lot of people don't, don't trust because they don't have the opportunity to um, access health care. Um, or they have seen something that has or been uh, not treated well. Or, you know, they've heard stories about others who haven't received the same type of treatment. And so part of that is still education. Um, and another part is um, being willing to share stories. Uh, because a lot of times we have health issues and we are ashamed of our health issues. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's something that we caused, but sometimes it's, it's something we didn't cause. And there's still a shame and a fear with the big C. It, that hasn't gone away. Um, I, I remember with my mother, that, that and kidney failure, those were her two big fears. Um, and she had sisters who had, in fact, I think just about everybody out of eight, of eight children, probably five of them had cancer. And um, two or three of them had kidney issues. Several had, you know, diabetes. So, and I remember the sugar diabetes stories <laughs> uh, growing up. But, you know, that a lot of that is, is willingness to share what's going on in your life. And we are still, a, a, in large part, a community that says what goes on at our house stays at our house. And so we don't share and we don't learn. Um, when I was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, I was on oxygen 24-7. So it wasn't something that I could hide from anybody. Um, and I wasn't going to stay home because of that. So I learned to share the things that I was dealing with and oftentimes found that other people were dealing with some of the same issues but they were afraid to say something until I did. So I think a large part of it is being a community that shares um, the truth of what's going on in our lives instead of, of hiding so mm -hmm. that we can eradicate some of the um, misinformation that gets out. So we had Dr. Harrison say that every day is a war. We had Carmen say that be truthful about your health concerns in your health story so that others can learn from it. And so, Jacqueline? Well, it goes back to what you've heard across this panel. Education is the key. That is the key. And to understand, uh, we're talking about cancer, 
cancer doesn't discriminate. And I can tell you that firsthand, I lost my father to cancer. I lost a sister to breast cancer. And I have another sister who now is a two-time survivor of triple negative breast cancer, which is the new ugly thing um, in terms of the breast cancers. It's one of the most difficult to treat, but she's doing well and has gone through her second battle. And a big part of it through this whole process, from losing my first sister to breast cancer, which was a different type of breast cancer, we educated ourselves as a family so we could better understand what was happening with my sister now, Sylvia, who's in her, just completed her treatment for second time around with cancer. And so it's very important that you learn as much as you can. And I can remember when Sylvia was going through her first uh, cancer treatments, I remember her getting to the second phase and the first concoction was so toxic that she was constantly in and out of the hospital with, um, you know, pneumonia, all kinds of things. And it was so toxic that they refused to give her the last uh, treatment in the first phase. And of course, I wanted my sister to live, so I got all up in arms. I think I called up every oncologist that I knew in the state and through the V Foundation. Thank God for the V Foundation because they have some very skilled oncologists there who specialize in all different types of cancers. And they were my saving grace because they educated me enough to understand why the decision was made not to give her the third treatment of her phase one. And I felt comfortable. She got better and then went on and started her second round of treatment. But had I not known the things that I learned from these oncologists and just reaching out to people and knowing that there are people out there who can help me and, and where to turn to, had I not known that, I probably would have not been a good support system for my sister. Because although I have the science knowledge and all access to all of these people, I'm human and she's my sister and I wanted her the best for her and I wanted her to live and that's all I cared about at that time. But the education was the most important part and it has been and continues to be for my family. And so to answer that question, I stick with education is so important. And Gary, just to repeat the question for you, um, what are your hopes for the future of healthcare in the United States and its impact on building trust from individuals and families impacted by cancer? Well, I hope as all of these things manifest here when you're talked about that the, then the research that comes out and the technology, I mean, every, everyone carries, you know, we all have our phones and these things are light years ahead of what computers were when we were, you know, younger. And so we've made so much progress so rapidly. And I think when events like COVID happen, and as cancer research continues to progress and as the technology continues to improve and you can use new modeling techniques and things of that nature and computing technology improves, that we will be able to leverage that and apply it across the access to the education and that through all of that, people will start to see a, a better picture of, of preventative and care options and understand then the treatment care options and have trust that they have um, input in both, both uh, aspects of that. I wanna thank the entire panel for just such an amazing and enriching uh, conversation. 
around what we can do, what's the future hopes, what are the origins of distrust, um, what are the ways in which we have seen the evolution of medicine, the medical field, um, post-COVID, and how can we be better advocates to Jacqueline Point of people who are uh, fighting cancer right now. And so with that, we're going to transition into our Q&A session. And uh, we have Troy returning to uh, facilitate those questions. But again, I want to thank the uh, panel. Uh, I, I know we have a question in the audience. We got some earlier, but I love to hear, I'm a big person on lear learning a person's why, right? Like, why do you do what you do? Dr. Ruth, Jacqueline, and, and others have shared uh, that it was personal for them, whether that was through loss of loved ones. But I'd really love to hear from each and one of you, like, why do you do what you do? Like, what, at the core of who you are, why do you help people? Why is service important to you? Well, for me, I mean, and, and Jacqueline hit on it earlier, but she's spent her career in, the, in the, the clinical piece. And for me, being able to supply the drug to the clinical piece that helps the patients um, is rewarding. And so really to see that come to fruition from some sort of idea and then know that it's going in to patients in the clinic, even though we haven't perfected that, obviously, um, it, it makes me feel good. Uh, for me, I just think it's uh, very important that we continue to um, educate people. Uh, you're going to hear education a million times up here because education is the key to life. And I do what I do because there was someone there who recognized my enthusiasm about life and having a, a better, a healthier society. And from an early age, I was a kid who wanted chemistry set on the front porch so I could just mix up things and blow them up. <laughs> and I wanted an operation game to prove to my family that I really do love science. I want to know about the anatomy of my body, of our bodies. And I want to know how um, with the chemistry thing later, as I got older, I wanted to know the pathways by which drugs work, which they operate. And so my enthusiasm for life and having a healthier society stems from a very early age and a strong, keen interest in how things work in the human body and how we respond to the environment. And so I'm still, every day I wake up, I start my day with prayer, and the next thing I do is I read an electronic journal to keep me abreast of what's going on in the world of science in hopes that I can make a contribution that's going to have a, help someone uh, so that we have a healthier society. So um, that's what my, I feel like my purpose is in life, is to help other people have a better quality of life. And so I use my scientific knowledge and whatever education I'm getting every day, and education to me, it's endless. You can always learn. And so I'm always open. I'm hungry for knowledge. So um, that is my take on that. So I think my purpose that I'm just really figuring out at age 60 um, is to teach history, is to teach the history of um, people whose history hasn't been told before, um, to make sure that people write down their memories their family knowledge, 
because I believe that every family in America has a part of our history within it. And we have to write it down. We have to tell it. We have to share it. Um, And so I didn't want to be an educator. I ran from that as a child because my mom and all her her sisters and brothers were. Um, But I've realized that that is who I am at the core of my being. Um, It's just that it's the history for me. Um, And so the history of whatever, it doesn't really matter. All the pieces need to um, make sense and fit. And and I want to share that with with everybody. Well, I I can say the same thing over again uh, that you've heard. I'll just say I'll just say this: if uh, if all of us worried about ourselves, then there there'll be exactly one person that's worried about each of us. And if all of us instead worry about everybody else, there'll be a millions and millions of people that are worried about each of us. And isn't that a better way to move forward? That was a mic drop. Uh, we're going to give it up to you, sir. I thank you for that. I put that in my back pocket. That was good. I, I heard a few things. One of the things that, I, that really jumped out to me is being a forever learner. Right? Always teaching, always learning. That's our hashtag. Always teaching, always learning. Uh, we had a question in the crowd, and that question was, and I'd love to hear the thoughts of those that are on the panel, what efforts are being taken to push these initiatives forwards, whether that is coming into new technology, media, marketing, what's going on to really push that agenda of making healthcare healthy again? It's a very complicated answer. I don't think there's one answer. But if you take as a premise that we're living in a digital world, uh, artificial intelligence and digital learning and um, all of the technologies that are, are coming upon us. Uh, those of us who look at what's coming out, I can tell you I'm astonished to see how much that's coming out that helps the business of a hospital, that helps uh, aspects of finances, financial assessments, etc. but how little of it is at the human level that touches the person. Wow. And, um, you know, a, a, a lesson that all of us needs to, need to pay attention to, I think, is uh, not to get so far away from the individual heart mm-hmm. and, and, and start, to, start to do things that are much, much more focused on that. One of the things that I do is I just share Um, I share on social media. If I'm going through something, I share it. If I'm talking to somebody, I share. And I encourage others to share. So there's a heart-to-heart connection. I want people to know the things that I've had to deal with because I know other people have to deal with things. And sometimes, as I said before, we just don't talk about it. And so then we feel like we're in it by ourselves. And none of us are in it by ourselves. So I just, I want people to know that you're not the only one out here. You're not the only one having to deal with stuff. And if there's anything I can do to help you, whether it's educating or over the weekend, I cooked for a family that was was dealing with stuff or just sharing, you know, I've got Sheets that I created from when I was caregiving that I am happy to share with other people. I don't, there's nothing I have 
that I won't give to share with someone else to help them. And I think a lot of us are that way, but we're sometimes we just have a fear of putting stuff out there. So I'm learning to overcome that fear of giving. I love that. I've once heard that sharing is caring, right? I heard that as a toddler. But I've also heard that uh, we overcome by the power of our testimonies. We do. So being able to share and be transparent, be vulnerable, right? You never know what other people are going through. <laughs> so for you to step up to the plate and say, you know what? I'm going to use my strength and what I've overcome to help someone else is very, very powerful. And if we did that more, Doc, right? That one person, man, that trickle effect would be ridiculous. We got a special question from the crowd. So let the people know your name. You got, tell them, tell them your name. Wanda Thomas. Miss Thomas, so you were in the crowd tonight. I'm curious, what is it that you would love to ask these panelists? Well, I more so have a comment. Um, thank you all. Everything that you've said has been meaningful. And I think it's going to take all of that because this is a deep issue. But for me, one thing is just personal accountability. Because I feel like a lot of things, hearing stories, um, being educated, um, technology, it's all so much. Right. But I still feel like that a person has to take personal accountability for their own health on what they eat, how they live, um, who they talk to, where they hang out, all of that, um, because your environment is a part of the process as much as what you eat. Right. And so I just think people need to take personal accountability if they can, because I know some people, they just are not there, but it helps. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Accountability is a big deal. Could y'all could would y'all agree that accountability is a big deal? It is. It, it is. is. Okay. We got another question from the man, the myth, the legend. Come on up here, sir. This guy right here, man, we met a couple years back. Uh, he serves the community on several different levels. Uh, he is the executive director of American Cancer Society in Eastern and Central Wake. Let the people know your name. Uh, Richard Aberton, in Eastern <laughs> Central North Carolina. North Carolina. Uh, I did have a question. Um, it made me think, um, I think it was Dr. Harrison talking about in New York with COVID and everything. You know, one would think that when you find a cure for something, they would be champion, right? And I always had a lot of empathy for Dr. Fauci because I felt like, you know, we didn't have a playbook for this. And he made decisions that was in the best interest of human beings. And for some reason, one part of our country doesn't seem that way. So my question to you is, what if there's a vaccine for cancer found? Knowing that what happened in the past, how would you roll this out? How would you, how would you, you do that? I mean, because knowing that what happened before and there's always mistrust, and if there was a cure for cancer and Dr. Is it Dr. Cohen is the new... Um, from North Carolina is the new Department of Health. She rolled that out. How would, what would lessons will we learn, I guess, is my question. Does that make sense? For one thing, a vaccine against cancer will have had years of study that would not be under the duress that the COVID vaccine mm -hmm. had. We had a, a vaccine that was developed by necessity very, very quickly before the levels of testing that any vaccine under other circumstances, would have had to uh, undergo. 
And then, and I'm, I, I, I was vaccinated. I got all the boosters, et cetera. But, but then you have people mandated to take it. And that's where I think the big problem in our society came. Because if you had a vaccine for cancer and you put it out there and there's lots of studies that show it, I think people would be lining up to get that vaccine. If you had a vaccine and you made it the law that someone has to take that vaccine, people start to bristle. And so the duress of the COVID situation and the, I think the goodwill to try to keep people safe, I think that whole process just uh, fueled the mistrust exponentially. So I would point out right now, uh, the, the analogy that I would use is HIV. Um, if you go back to the late 80s, HIV was misunderstood. The demographic that was largely um, impacted by HIV was, was misunderstood, not necessarily accepted. It took a lot of years, a lot of research, a lot of social change, so it was a combination of social change and technological advancement. And and now I think through the combination of those, you've, you've found more acceptance of um, taking uh, medications that address that particular um, disease state. And it's much more, con- a, a much more controlled situation. So, I think it's going to, I don't, I think it's a very complex situation because the economics of it and, you know, the, 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 the money and the payment is one thing. The education is another thing. And then the technology that supports the change. Uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged when I look out there and, you know, you know, the, the mapping of the genome and the information that we now have about the human body and the ability to do things um, have it autologously and allogeneically, which, which means you know if if you donate cord blood, mothers that donate cord blood, how that cord blood can be used. Uh, there's cha- advancements all the time. So I, I but I think it's got to be multifaceted. I think it's going to be a, there's the social aspects, there's the economic aspects, and it's got to be combined with the technology and then wrapped up with better information. So just for the people that are listening, let the people know your name, okay? My name, excuse me, my name is Mamie Branch, and I here, I'm here from the community, and I'm also on the board for Southeast Raleigh Community Learning Center. Two things. Thank you, panel, for the information that you shared with us. Um, first question, how can we get our religious communities involved in distributing information. And the second question is, I'm of that age that every time I go to the doctor, they always want to know, have you fallen? I think another key question should be, have you tripped? Because a trip can lead to a fall, but it could be something else going on at the same time. And it's bothering me. So every time I go to my doctor, I have them to note in my chart, I'm taking it upon myself to take care of me, to note in my chart 
to ask me that if I don't tell them. Because something could be going on, you know, with your brain, with your body. We don't know. But it's something about that tripping that I'm concerned with. So if someone can address that, I would appreciate it. I'm going to say that in order to encourage the faith communities to participate in this kind of educational process, someone would have to reach out with a plan and get them on board. I don't think it's just, you know, I know that a lot of uh, faith communities have health fairs and that type of thing, but it's not quite the same as what we've done today. And a lot of times um, faith organizations don't have staff that can help put something like this together. So it could be something that, you know, you could head up in, in the community and say, you know, just reach out to several faith organizations and say, I'd like to host something like this. Would you all partner with me? Um, you you can reach out to Terrence to try to, you know, pull the panel together. may not be the same panel, but another panel. And I think um, those organizations would be willing to do it if they didn't necessarily have the responsibility of putting all of it together because they may not know where to go to access all of the pieces. But, you know, they may be willing to host it at their facility or that kind of thing. And I think that's an, that's an important question because I do think um, a lot of times health care in the faith communities is ignored until someone is, is sick or, um, you know, not able to carry out responsibilities, perhaps in leadership. But I think that health care information is important for everybody. And Ms. Branch, I, I, I grew up in a, a faith tradition that would have seen medicine as something that's against a spiritual journey. So they would have, they would have been at, at odds with each other. Um, and so I think bringing in a Dr. Harris, bringing in a Jacqueline, bringing in a Gary uh, to um, reduce the distance between science and religion and have human-to-human conversation I think that that would be impactful, but but I, I grew up in a tradition that would have um, seen issue with ha- with having medicine as a leading cure for for before any spiritual engagement. So I just just to, there, there is a um, a conversation to be had. It, that's uh, that's a course, a Yale course. So no. <laughs> oh, if I'm hearing you correctly, sir, it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist. I just. I, I, I just think that there are some cultural um, uh, elements to faith and spirituality that I think needs to be further explored with human beings, like yeah. a Dr. Harrison, Gary, Jacqueline, who who are, who are human beings in the profession. Mm-hmm. And so you're not talking about science; you're talking to a scientist. You're not talking about medicine; but you're talking to a doctor. And I think that would be uh, more helpful, in my opinion, than than to. Well, the, God help us if we have doctors that are not humble enough to realize that what we all do is subservient mm. to the uh, larger powers mm. that be. Mm. That was good, sir. You, you put some polish on that one. I like you that. Did, you did. I appreciate that. One, one of the other things I want to suggest, though, is as Terrence was saying, with in terms of the cultural norms, you know, I, I have heard, I have been told, I didn't pray enough. 
Um, I didn't um, I didn't believe enough in order for whatever issue I had to be to not be or to be healed. Um, and that is some in some cases where you know I talked earlier about their secrecy and shame. That is that is one of the other places or spaces where that does occur, and um, and that's a that is a concern because I think we lose people be- behind that, um, and and it could be for me because I grew up living with a science person, a pharmacist. So you know we'd get a cold, he'd send us to the doctor, and and I grew to like that great medicine that they used to give me too. And he had to stop me from taking it. But, you know, I think those, you know, those are valid concerns. I do think that there are there are faith organizations that would um, be will- very willing to host this kind of thing, though. I'm just going to leave you with something very personal that I experienced. I had a wonderful family physician when I lived in New York, and he was unfortunately diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I remember walking into his office one day thinking, after he's seen me for my visit and everything, he called me into his office, and he never does that. So I walk into the office, and we always talked about a lot of things, about family, even about faith. And I walked into his office, and he said to me, Jacqueline, I want you to understand clearly that I understand it was a gift from God for me to be able to treat. He said, I'm not a healer, but I am a treater. And I think I share that with you because I think we do need to marry faith and medicine together because, as Dr. Ruth touched on, there are faith-based organizations or even just some family members that don't believe in treatment. Well, God created doctors, (laughs) and everything He created for a purpose. It has its purpose, and that's really what my doctor was saying to me. As tough as it is for me to walk in here and to say, try and explain to the very people I've been working with uh, as patients for so long to save their lives, I want them to understand I am a treater. I'm a physician. I treat things, treat diseases. I treat, but I am not a healer. And I think if we can go with that attitude coming from the faith-based side, and I think we can marry the two, but it would take uh, person of leadership in that environment to make it happen. Definitely would love to see that happen and hopefully you could be the spearheader to make that happen. We would love to make that happen here. So thank you again. We appreciate you guys. For those that are listening, realize this was about conversations and donations. So please go to menwearpink.org. Help us to fight the good fight, the war against eradicating cancer. Thank you again. Thank you.